Good morning, church. Would everyone please like to take a seat? Uh, we encourage you to keep your conversations going after the service, ideally. This morning, our sermon passage is from the book of First Timothy in the New Testament. Uh, please open up your Bibles to First Timothy chapter six, verses six to ten. Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. This is the word of the God. Thank you, brother, for reading God's word, both spiritually and literally, my brother. Uh, I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet. My name's Darren, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're going to be spending our time in this passage, and uh, in order to do this well, we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, what we know not, would you teach us? What we are not, would you make us? And what we have not, would you give us? For your Son's name's sake. Amen. Well, we are in a series called Biblical Stewardship, exploring uh, what we do with the things God gives us. Um, we looked first week at time, seeing how it is both brief and precious, and how we want to um, use it most intentionally. Uh, Nath, uh, Sam then led us through a biblical theology of money, wealth, and possessions. And last week, uh, Nath highlighted the dangers of storing up earthly treasures and not being rich towards God. Now, the next two weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the idea of being content with less and then what to do when you've got more. Content with less and what to do when you've got more. Uh, back in 2010, uh, during this time, and it was September, and uh, well, it's October today, but during September holidays, I was camping up at Dickey Beach Caravan Park in Calandra uh, by myself um, and figured, well, I'm waking up early because the sun's, uh, you know, the sun's coming up early. So at 5.45, I went to the nearest Telstra store and began waiting outside because this was the day where the iPhone 4 was being released. And I wanted one. There's probably no person more discontent in this world than an iPhone user the day after a new model is announced. Although with the latest release, there's perhaps no person more disappointed than an iPhone user the day after the new model has been announced. But if you're like me, maybe you have experienced or probably know what it feels like to not be content with what you have. I recall watching the TV show Getaway growing up. Hands up if you remember the TV show Getaway. Okay, brilliant. I don't know if it's still going, you know, excellent. I remember watching Getaway, and it was a TV show that just showed you all these 
incredible holiday destinations around the world and in Australia. Uh, and I remember seeing segments on Disneyland. I, I swear my parents wanted us not to watch it. Um, we would see Disneyland. It was amazing because you would fly on a plane and you would stay in a hotel, and you could ride roller coasters, and there was like theme parks, and, and to me it was the most amazing thing, but in order to get to Disneyland, you had to be rich. Never been to Disneyland. We never went, but boy, did it capture my imagination. I think everybody here has probably dreamt about being rich at some point in their life. You've probably thought about what it would be like if you were to win lotto how you'd spend the money. I grew up in Mount Warren Park, which is near Bean Lee, essentially kind of the economic dip between Brisbane and the Gold Coast. Uh, the Lord has always provided for my parents uh, when they migrated from Zimbabwe some 39 years ago. Uh, my mom taking care of us as children and working as a teacher. My dad initially uh, through IT at the council and owning a business and now a train driver. Um, by, by God's grace, we got by, and even when uh, times were financially tight, I think as good parents do, they shield the children from how tight the finances are. You know, for instance, I grew up thinking that Maison, um, which is a bubbly, non-alcoholic, sparkling drink, um, was expensive. You could buy it for $4 at Woolies. We only came out at birthday parties, and I thought this thing must be cost at least $100 or so, because we only get it very rarely. Oh, by God's grace, we were content and thankful for what we had. And we, we really did have plenty. But that didn't mean the desire for more was not insatiable. In fact, culture had primed me and primed all of us to just want a little bit more, right? The belief that you'll be content when you've got more stuff is broadcast through everything in our advertising, our marketing, uh, the cultural stories we tell ourselves is that having riches is good and having more riches is even more good. We see in Aladdin wanting to be rich, to get the girl, the fame, the lifestyle, whether it's in pirates looking for buried treasure or the plot of every Ocean's Eleven movie heist, we want riches. We'd like them. Discontentment and desire for money is simply the air we breathe in our culture. I read this week that some private schools in Melbourne now have a 10-year waiting list to get in. One school in particular to send your child through their education will set you back $300,000. Why do many people want their kids to get into a good private school, to get a good private education? Is it not so that they will get in with the right crowd, that they'd get a good job, make good money, essentially they'd be rich. They want the lifestyle that goes with it. Now, of course, you have other reasons for why you might desire riches. Um, that is true. Not everyone wants it for uh, necessarily a lifestyle thing. Um, Tim Keller notes that some want money uh, for security. Some want money for comfort. Some people want money for power. Might be different motivations for why we want it. Others maybe want money for significance. I wonder for you, what drives you and a desire for money? What are you wanting? What, you, what will you hope um, that money will do for your heart? Descartes sent, uh, said, I think, therefore I am. Our cultural motto is, I am what I earn. 
So this is the culture we breathe and live in. And what do you think happens when this kind of culture begins to infiltrate the church, the people of God? Where the desire for more gets kind of co-opted with Christianity and they're made to live alongside each other in the same household. Well, this is what Paul has been addressing just in the preceding verses of this passage. He's actually been uh, addressing false teachers who think that godliness, that religion, is some sort of way to get financial gain. Listen to how he describes it. Verse 3 of chapter 6, read with me. If anyone teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Maybe if you were to play spot the prosperity preacher, a few people might come to mind. Be aware of this perhaps in the the global church in Australia is not immune of health, wealth, and prosperity. And Paul says, well, these kind of teachers, their content is out of line and their character is corrupt. Thinking religion is the way to make bank. Now, we might name and reject the obvious prosperity gospel kind of desire, but we might have end up adopting a more subtle one, the lesser version, the baby cousin, as it were. We might misapply truths in the Bible like God wants me to be happy. God wants me to enjoy this life. But really what ends up kind of sometimes happening is we end up just kind of Christianizing the middle class Australian dream, which is to move closer to the upper class. Just to have a little bit more. Have a little bit more. This drift away from true Christian doctrine tries to co-op God towards our worldly desires. Such thinking clouds our judgment and by God's grace we need to be set straight. So look with me this morning, we'll spend our time at two main things. The first thing is this, I want us to look at the dangers of desiring riches and then secondly how to overcome it. So the dangers of desiring riches and then secondly how to overcome it. Look with me in verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. All right, so Timothy here, he's addressing, uh, sorry, Paul here is writing to Timothy, his kind of Padawan in the faith. He's, been, he's pastoring people in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus is a city uh, dominated by wealth. In fact, it was one of the most, it was the hub for commercial and economic trade. Uh, it was so financially secure, the Caesars often stored their money in that city. Um, and like with most cities, you've got a breadth of people being rich and people trying to get rich. Uh, and so in Ephesus, you've got slaves coming to Christ, you've got jailers coming to Christ, you've got blue-collar workers coming to Christ, and these people now got to figure out, how do we adopt the ways of Christ and not the ways of the world? So he's showing them here, Paul's trying to bring them in to a reality of how, to, the warning not to be ensnared in some of the trappings of riches. 
How will they make sure they don't replace that which is tr- transcended, the glorious, beautiful gospel, with that which is mundane, earthly riches? But firstly, he wants them to see the danger of it. Now, name, naming the danger of something, I, I want you to know, is actually a really gracious act. Naming the danger of something, giving a warning, is actually a really gracious act. If you've been to the Northern Territory, you'll see that there are signs that say, no swimming, you know, beware crocs. Um, people who wear crocs should also have that same warning. <clears throat> What's the warning doing? It's, it's alerting you to the danger of something that lurks beneath the surface. Well, what lurks beneath the surface? Well, it says it's a snare. The danger is set like a snare, a temptation. It's something that people fall into. Fall into it implies that they weren't kind of aiming for it. They've tripped their way into it. It was money they were after. It was just a little bit more. It was just some nicer things. It didn't mean to end up in ruin and destruction, but destruction's what they got. Why? Because the desire for riches is like a trap. The snare is a picture of like a, a wire, a noose laid on the ground, seed scattered. The birds would come in, they'd pull the snare. That's what's happening to the person who desires to be rich. The other imagery there, imagery there is plunging or of a sinking ship plunged into ruin. Essentially, the price of discontentment in your heart is that you'll be torpedoed to death. It'll sink you. Who's he's addressing here? He's addressing those who desire to be rich. Now, that's tricky for two reasons. The first reason is tricky because most of us wouldn't say we are rich. Paul will address those who are considered rich later next week in verses 17 to 19. But here he's addressing those who desire to be rich, implying right now they aren't considered by society to be rich. And I want to say by way of extension, they themselves don't consider themselves to be rich. I think this would include here in Australia um, what we call a relative poverty, which does exist here in Australia. People who may live bill to bill, um, pensioners, uh, those on Centrelink, um, living with illnesses or, or injury, um, you know, uni students um, perhaps. But I think it is those who desire to be rich. Because rich usually, I don't know about you, but rich is usually the, the, the group just above you in the financial bracket. It's the ones earning twenty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 more than you. Well, they're the ones who are rich. And do you know what that group in the $200,000, $150,000 bracket, do you know what they're thinking? Oh, we're not rich. That's the $500,000 bracket people. And you know what the $500,000 bracket people are thinking? It's the, uh, the group above. On and on it goes. Those who are not content with what they have, those who desire to have more wealth, more money, more possessions, that's who Paul is addressing here. So it can be amongst us, both literally and in this sense by way of application. Just um, on a side note, if you are on the minimum wage in Australia, you are among the top 4.2% earners in the world. Congratulations. So a trap is hard to see. That's why Paul calls it a snare. Harmful desires, ruin and destruction. This is what you've got to watch out for. This is where it's leading you. 
I'm not sure if you've seen any uni brochures or get-rich-quick schemes, the warnings of pursuing wealth. Most of them paint a pretty cracking lifestyle, which often doesn't look like much work, a lot of travel and having things. Well, it's hard to spot. We've probably seen ways in which those who desire to be rich have been ensnared. Can you think of any? Can you think of people's desire for riches and wealth and how it might have led to ruin and destruction? Here's some things that might have come to mind. I think it might lead to compromise. This desire to to want and to have more money might lead people to cheat on a tax return, to take from work, to have a kind of competition with co-workers so they get ahead and get the promotion. I think in this disordered desire for riches, you end up making other sacrifices. People with a disordered love for work and money end up putting a lot of hours into work at the neglect of family, at the neglect of their marriages, trying to make money. I think it leads to other neglect. Neglect in working more hours comes at the neglect of making disciples. I simply don't have time to get on board with the mission of God because I'm spending so much time at work. And when I've finished my time at work making money because I want more of it, I'm simply too exhausted to get on the mission of God mission of the church becomes a neglect. Pursuit of wealth and accumulation for more may become at the expense of generosity, not least of which supporting gospel ministry through a local church. I knew one girl growing up, she said God wanted her to save for a house deposit before she gave to the church. That's idolatry. That's the deception of riches. Estimates suggest that Australians lose approximately $25 billion a year on legal gambling. It represents the largest per capita loss in the world. We literally are the biggest losers when it comes to gambling. We spent $225 billion on gambling. That is larger than Morocco's GDP. And they have 40% more people, population, than we have. Not to mention the risk, getting rich quick, investing in schemes, riding the stock market recklessly, over-investing in digital currency, gambling away. Aren't we fortunate the gambling ads help us out, though, when they say things like, what are you really losing? Do they want people to actually think about that for a moment? Not really. Ruin, destruction. That's the pathway and the dangers of riches. Can you see the snare of discontentment? Have you heard people express things like, I am drowning in debt, I'm over my head and mortgage repayments, I can't get on top of the debt. What is that? They've been plunged. Ruin destruction. Ruin in this life, destruction in the next. One study showed that 60% of Australians are unable to sleep because they're stressed about money. That's 7 million people. We are wealthier than any generation before us, yet we are more anxious about our finances. So what is going on with this? How can we have so much, yet be so dissatisfied? Why do people follow these urges as 
literally kind of encapsulated by 50 cent, get rich or die trying. Paul diagnoses it here. He says it is a disordered love at play. Look at verse 10 with me. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So if ruin and destruction wasn't enough, I want you to picture a human pincushion. To the children in the room, if you're drawing pictures, you can pay attention for a moment. If you've ever had a splinter in your hand, you'll know the pain of that. Pain comes in, a little bit of a pang, and it's painful. It's sore. Children can stop listening. Parents, I don't want you to imagine a splinter. I want you to imagine some spears. I want you to imagine people that you maybe went to high school with or to uni with. I want you to imagine co-workers, people on your street perhaps, people who you know are, are chasing a little bit more money. I want you to picture them impaled to death. That's the picture of what happens when you pursue a love of money. Pierce themselves. No one else did it. They've done this to themselves. It's a visceral picture. Now, we have to be clear here, and Paul's being clear. Firstly, notice that it is the love of money, not money itself, that is the root of all evils. You can be a Christian, a faithful Christian, have money. In fact, the, the Bible has people who, who do have lots of money. Um, Abraham was wealthy. There's Job. You've got New Testament patrons who are supporting the work of ministry. So having material goods is an evil. But the pursuit of such wealth can lead some people to set aside the teachings of Christ and the gospel. And that's a disordered love. That is a destructive, um, and that disordered love ends in, destructive, in, in, in destruction. Secondly, it says it's not just uh, the love of money, but it is a root of evil, not the root of evil. And so if you're thinking this week to go share the meme that comes on of, you know, money is the root of all evil, it's not true. It's a root not the root of all kinds of evil. There's other causes of evil other than money, though money, the love of money, seems to, to, to bring about them to the surface. Um, again, you know this to be true, the oppression of the poor, wars, the disregard for sustainable development, family tensions around inheritance, disputes in marriages, the co-opting of progressive ideologies for capitalistic gain, follow the money. Drug trade, exploitation, what is this? There is a love of money that is producing all kinds of evils. Proverbs 28, 20 teaches, whoever hastens to get rich will not go unpunished. The consequences, friends, I hope you can see what Paul's saying, the consequences of this is life-threatening. 2002, there was a Desiring God conference on money. And there's a speaker, Randy Alcorn, and he was going to speak. He wrote a book called The Treasure Principle. Um, we've probably got a few copies of the bookstore. And uh, John Piper was introducing him. And as he introduced him, he said, I would like to just share my five favorite quotes from Randy's book. His top five quotes are as follows. God prospers us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. The greatest deterrent to giving is this, 
the illusion that earth is our home. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And lastly, when people tell me I can't afford to tithe, I ask them, if your income was reduced by 10%, would you die? It's okay to chuckle. Would you die? If you have the love of money in operation in your heart, this craving might just kill you. You may just wander away from the faith, slowly but surely. So brothers and sisters, heed the warning. Loyalty to God and devotion to mammon, ungodly riches, it's incompatible. Oil and water, they do not mix. You cannot serve both God and money. You see, the love of money will cost you and it just might kill you. That's what Paul's saying. Now, the good news is um, what won't kill you is contentment. Is contentment. But before we move to contentment, I just want to have a little intermission for a moment. Um, smoking is back up on the rise. Young people having uh, smoking, buying cigarettes, obviously vaping's on the rise. And, and, and the fear, the, the fear for a passage like this today for us would be similar. This is what it would be, that we would see the ugly side of the pursuit of wealth, kind of like a smoker sees those ugly graphics on the boxes, but still puff away anyway. We would think that we're the exception. That's not really us. I wonder if in 50 or 100 years, Christians may very well look back on our time, let's just call it Western culture, and they may see and ask the questions, how on earth do we get materialism so wrong? We'll look back maybe like we look back on the Christians in the slave trade and wonder, how could they have got that wrong? This may be ours. This is our temptation. So this is the dangers of desiring to be rich. Then what is the way to overcome it? I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be impaled. I don't want to end up in ruin and destruction. I have a different 10-year plan. So how is that going to play out? Well, look with me in verse 6 to 8. The godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these we will be content. Yeah, the good news of the gospel is this, since God has given us so much in Christ, we can be content with much less in this life. We overcome the desire for riches by embracing the riches that are ours in Christ and gladly receiving the lot that He has providentially given us. Godliness with contentment is both greater than we think and it takes less than we imagine. Firstly, it's greater than we think. Um, I wonder if, you, if you're into maths, children, I don't know if you're into maths, um, if you are, keep it up. There's kind of an equation that, that Paul, keep up other studies as well, other things are important too, maths. Um, there's like an equation that Paul is kind of putting before the, the, the reader of this, this letter for Timothy in the church. The, 
the equation that's operating with these false teachers, and the equation I think that operates in our false culture, is that, well, for those who pursue religion, is that kind of religion plus gain, or getting gain equals contentment. I feel satisfied. I want religion to get me money so I can feel satisfied. Do you know what Paul's equation is? Paul's equation is godliness or religion plus contentment plus satisfaction. That equals great gain. If you're wanting great gain, it's going to only come by contentment. By contentment. And notice he says great gain. That word is mega. Do you know what it's in Greek? The word is mega. It's big. So he's thinking, hey, you want a great gain? I'm talking 100 times returns here. This is way better than any kind of minimalistic financial gain you can have. This is a purely a better, truer riches. When I, I had a friend come back from a trip to Cambodia, um, and if you've ever had friends come back from overseas mission trips or sorts, you usually got to be careful when you spend time with them because their conviction is going to begin to rub off on you. Anyway, so she's, um, she was struck but just by how satisfied the children were with the little sticks they were playing with that were dolls and the ball of masking tape, which was their soccer ball. And she says they were thrilled, not a worry in the world, loving life. And she expressed when she came back to her own house, she saw the abundance of toys, the abundance of space. And she could see in her children what was reflected in her own heart, a kind of discontentment with all that we have, an inability to enjoy it. Why couldn't she be more content? I don't know about you, but I think most of us would like to be content with less, wouldn't we? We would love to be satisfied with less, to feel secure, to, to, um, to feel, uh, have our desires satiated. We'd love to be satisfied. And that word satisfied really is the heart of what being content, content is. Paul uses the, the word in, in its root form in two other places that I'll mention. The word idea, um, this idea in 2 Corinthians 9 eight. this is what he says. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency, contentment, in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. That's brilliant. God's going to make his grace abound to you that you'll feel satisfied in all things. Hebrews 13 Five says something similar. It says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God said, never will I leave you nor will I forsake you. Why is it that people want more stuff? Part of the reason is they're not sure God's gonna take care of them. That God's gonna come through and filling that little needy hole of, of, of pleasure and desire. But you want the 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 author of Hebrews is saying, he's, he's showing us how can you be satisfied? Well, because God will never leave you nor forsake you. He's got you. He is providing for you. He has provided for you. He's provided for your deepest spiritual needs on the cross through his son, Jesus Christ, taking the, taking the punishment for our sin. He'll provide for your daily needs if he's been able to provide for your deepest needs. Friends, the new car, that ain't got you. It's going to keep you warm. If you have heat seaters, it might, but nicer clothes, they're not going to redeem you. Renovations, they're not going to nurture your soul. The next investment venture, that's not going to scoop you up when your life is messy. 
the savings balance that'll never be enough to settle a restless soul. They don't have you. They're not designed to have you. But God does. He who has provided for you and will provide for you during your earthly existence. Friends, godliness with contentment is to have Christ and his benefits and to let those riches seep into your soul. Les Murray, an Australian poet, not a soccer commentator, uh, he said, the, truest, the true God gives his flesh and blood. Idols demand yours of you. True God gives his flesh and blood. Idols demand yours of you. Idols want to take. God wants to give. God has given himself to us through the gospel. So as God has given himself, would we lay hold of God? By grace, hold firm to who he is and what he has to offer us. The reason for godliness with contentment can be seen there in verse 7 then. Keep following with me. He says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Job observed something similar when he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. This is kind of Paul's reasoning for why you can be content and why godliness with contentment is great gain, for the reason being, you can't take it with you. True gain, great gain, will not be in the stuff you make in this life and have. You cannot keep it. There is no carry-on luggage on your departure to heaven or on your departure to hell if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus. Yeah, the Egyptians, they didn't believe this, right? So the Egyptians were kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Um, they believed uh, that you could take your possessions into the afterlife with you. And so kings would be buried with their treasure. Uh, 1922, uh, King Tut, his tomb was discovered. And uh, there's a side room to King Tut's tomb, which is called the Annex. And possessions were placed in the Annex. So when King Tut kind of went through the afterlife, he could take all his possessions with him. Do you know what was going on in the Annex room? On first look, 2,000 possessions, still there. Five months later from excavations, guess what? 5,000 possessions, all still there. King Tut, all on his own. You see, friends, we can't take it with us, can we? So the question would be, why are we living like we can? Why are we living... Like, this is all there is. That we've got to keep all this. This is our significance. Paul is trying to teach that the acquisition of things has no final value. It won't matter. False teachers in the world of our day is also trying to say that it does. Paul is wanting Timothy and those he passes in Ephesus not to just know that they can't take it with them, but to actually live out that reality, to be content. That's the trick, taking it from a verbal profession to a lived reality. Listen to what one commentator, Riken, says. He says, even if we are thankful for what we have, we often think about the things that we do not have and how to get them. This explains the sudden pang of discontent we feel when we realize that we cannot afford something we want to buy or the guilt we feel because we bought it anyway and now we are in debt as a result. Credit card was not my friend when I was 18, 19. 
It served my idolatry rather well. It was life-taking, life-sucking. See, the opposite of contentment is not trying to look for more, not needing to go on the, the internet or the, the magazines and, and look for the next thing, the next purchase, the next upgrade, the next renovation, the next improvement. Contentment is a, is a heart position that is, is uh, slow to buy and quick to give. It's always grateful and never entitled. Paul says it's great gain. I wonder what we'll be content to leave behind when we die. I wonder what would you be content to leave behind tomorrow? To go without? If you had to walk away with it. What cash, what possessions, what material goods, what furnishings could you possibly just step away from and still feel supremely content in Christ? I think the minimalism movement started to get onto this realizing that joy is not so much an abundance of things, but rather having an abundance of joy in the smaller, in reduced, in a focus of what we have right in front of us. So the first point, friends, is that gain is greater than we think. God's wanting you to be, to be satisfied, to be content, to delight with godliness. The second point, then, is that it takes much less than you think. So look with me at verse 8. I think verse 8 here kind of counterbalances verse 7. Uh, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So obviously, we just can't live, you know, we can't just live naked and no shelter in this world and hungry. We, I've been watching a TV series alone. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this show. It's about how people, survival experts, go and try and live by themselves in a place, um, see how long they can go for. Um, the best part was not realizing it was survival experts at the beginning. I just thought it was just average Joes, like on like us, just giving it a red-hot crack. And I'm like, this is dangerous. There's bears. Um, but it's survivalists. They're trying to survive. Well, there are some basic necessities. And Paul is saying, hey, if we have food and clothing, this will be content. The word clothing means covering. So it includes shelter, food, water, shelter, clothing. If you've got them, listen, you can be satisfied. You say, Darren, but there's no brand name on them. That's okay. It doesn't have to be all Gucci. It can be all Onkyo, which is a Kmart brand. I think Paul, John Paul's doing, I think Paul's trying to reset our expectation for how much we think we need to be content. Paul is trying to reset our baseline of what we actually need to be happy. You know how low he's taking it? Oh, friends, it's much lower than... We're currently content, isn't it? <laughs> Food, clothing, content. I wonder who, who in your life gets to set the standard for when you're satisfied? I'll let you know a secret. The marketing people, it's not what you currently have. It's always a little bit more. So why are we letting marketing tell us when we'll be happy and satisfied? when God's word is coming in and saying, you can be content with food and clothing. You can be content. In fact, Paul is gonna go as far as to say in Philippians 4.11, he says, not that I'm speaking of need, for I've learned to be in, learned in whatever situation I am to be content, whether well-fed or hungry, well-clothed or naked. This brother can just handle it whatever throat comes his way. It's incredible. I am envious of that. That is available to all in Christ and to all who put their hope and trust in Christ. You can be discontent with much less, much less. 
what he's trying to do is he's trying to detach and unhook our, our, our like trailer of happiness from the pursuits of this world and trying to latch it onto true godliness, what is ours in the gospel. If you don't believe um, the reality that more is better, just listen to the difficulties here from Robbie Williams. Um, describe the dramas of owning his new Beverly Hills mansion. He's on a radio interview and he says, I brought a really big house, like really big. Bought a place that's 20 acre property, 27 toilets. But the upkeep, you need two gardeners, three housekeepers, a house manager, security, two nannies, fire insurance on the house is $700,000 a year, property taxes $400,000 a year. You can't just, you just can't win anyway. The life tax of actually having a property is so big that you cannot enjoy it. You come downstairs, you see 11 cars parked outside and they all work at your home. They're not even yours. You walk into the kitchen, there's eight people in the kitchen and none of them are your family. Poor Robbie Williams. At what cost? I wonder if Robbie would be content with food and clothing. And I wonder, would we? I wonder, would we? Maybe it would lead us to experience with the missionary Hudson Taylor when he said, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave away, the fuller of happiness and blessings did my soul become. I think Hudson Taylor gets it. I think Hudson Taylor gets it. Now, you may be asking, Darren, is it okay to want to change your financial circumstance? The answer is yes. It's okay to want to change your financial circumstance. One of the first cars I had had a frayed seatbelt, which wasn't allowed, I found out. Cigarette lighter, right up the seatbelt, took away the fray. I was very content then. I've got three children. I don't want frayed seatbelts with my children need a different, better, and more suitable car. So you might be wanting a bigger car to fit children in, or you might be needing a bigger house to accommodate um, a growing family, although we'd probably live and survive with much less. You may just want to you know, save up for an engagement ring, or, or, or have a little bit more margin so you're not going from bill to bill. That is okay, but the motivation needs to change. If the motivation is a desiring for riches, for more gain, Paul's saying you're going down a deadly track. We need to move from a place of contentment, satisfaction with what we have, supreme delight, and then seek to change our circumstances. Not for the love of self, but for love of God and love of others. And please, friends, don't let a, a growth in your financial position come at the expense of generosity. Just don't do it. Don't be so content to give away less and be so discontent to have more. Be content with what God's given you. So the secret to all this then, as we conclude, is really a fostering contentment in our heart. What are the things that fosters contentment in your heart? Question for you, what fosters discontentment? Maybe it was the show getaway for you. I know for me, I just had to stop looking up um, different clothes to buy when I was younger. I just couldn't do it. It just was a, as a. So what is it for you? 
What fuels your covetousness? We wouldn't call it that. We'd call it future planning for trips and purchases. Covetousness. It's at play. Well, the question is, being content. How do we get content with, in our own hearts? Well, friends, it is by accepting and being satisfied with the portion God has given you. True godliness, as one pastor says, means trusting God to provide for our needs whilst being content with what he supplies. The root word for contentment, do you know what it means? It means to contain or to hold in. Hold in your desires for more. Have some kind of restraint from wanting more. And as you contain that in, do you know what happens? Your joy goes up. Nathan, next week's going to look at what it looks like to... Uh, to love and enjoy the good gifts God gives you. So we're going to tease that out. But you will, you will never be so satisfied with the car you're currently driving as if you, if you receive this from, with gladness from the Lord, whatever your car is, receive it as a gift. Be glad of it. But being contentment means restraining and restricting, submitting to the lot you have. And so I had to learn, uh, I think I had to begin to learn this lesson when I was 21. I was living out of home, facing financial pressures. pressures. The lifestyle of my friends um, were, were a bit larger than mine. Um, I was stuck in comparison cycles, feeling inadequate, until some wise counsel just said, Darren, you need to understand right now in this season of your life, whilst you are studying, working part-time, living out of home, there are certain financial purchases that simply are not on the table for you, so you don't need to worry about them. Cannot save right now for a house deposit. A nicer car is not an option. Jet skis are off the table. Eating out at restaurants is a luxury. I'd often just eat dinner at home and arrive for the sparkling water and hope it was free. It was submitting to the financial circumstances that I am providentially in, repenting from the idolatry of materialism and the insatiable need for more and learning to trust the good provision of my Father. As I did that slowly, the glittery splendors of the world fade away into the glory of what I've been given in Christ. And the trick is to keep at the front of your mind. Live within your means. Give within your means. Spend within your means. Save within your means. Friends, God has given us so much, we can be so content with much less in this world. That's why Paul's advice to Timothy is to uh, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. These are the way, the path of contentment. Friends, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you're called by Christ. Christ will be our portion, and in that we can be content. To thee I owe my wealth and friends and health and safe abode. Thanks thy name for meaner things, but they are not my God. How vain a toy is glittering wealth, if once compared to thee. Or what's my safety, or what's my health, or all my friends to me? Were I possessor of the earth, and called the stars my own, without thy graces and thyself, I were a wretch undone. Let others stretch their arms like seas, and grasp in all the shore. Grant me the visits of thy grace, and I desire no more. Would we learn the art of contentment? We cannot take it with us. May we learn the enjoyment with much less and see that 
as great gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts need your help. My heart needs your help. Would you please purge in us the love of money, the desire for riches, the discontentment, and would you please foster in us rich satisfaction, delight, and joy in you and what you've providentially given us at this time. We pray for your name's sake. Amen.